0: Well, I want to take our Bibles this morning and we're going to look at the book of Colossians in chapter 3 where we're going to read the first 17 verses. It says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ, the rest of chapter 3 hinges on that phrase, if you have been raised with Christ. If you are experiencing that relationship through faith with Jesus Christ and then the rest of the chapter is, or at least of these 17 verses is focused on Different ways that we live because of that resurrected life that we have in Christ. And he starts off with, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body to be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Christianity as a religion is not a philosophy. It's not just a list of things that you do and you don't do, and not just a list of wise principles with which you can live out, God's will. It does include those, but it's not primarily those. In fact, those are actually secondary. Those are actually the fruit, whereas the root of Christianity is actually in a a person. Now, obviously, the person is Jesus Christ, but it also focuses on this event. There's an event that happened within history that cleanses us before God, that can make us right with God. And that, of course, is the event of Jesus Christ going to that cross and dying on that cross for us as a sacrifice for our sins and then His resurrection from the dead. On Good Friday, we focused on the cross and we talked about how Jesus offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. As both the sacrifice and the high priest. Well, you know, the interesting thing about the high priest is that when they offered the sacrifice, how did the people know that the sacrifice was accepted by God. The way that they knew that the sacrifice worked was if the high priest came out of the tabernacle, out of the Holy of Holies, alive. Because if he offered an inappropriate sacrifice, an unacceptable sacrifice, the high priest himself would be put to death. And so if the high priest came out alive, then the sacrifice was acceptable before God. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus Christ. He went on to the cross as our sacrifice, Offering himself as also our high priest. But how do we know that his sacrifice was acceptable before God? Because he came out of that alive. He completed the task. He was the sufficient sacrifice for all of our sins and the sins of the whole world. And that's why the resurrection is such a prominent place within Christianity. It is the central teaching of the apostles. In fact, if we look at the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts is the history book of the early church, we find that the resurrection is the prominent message of the apostles. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 22, the apostles are trying to decide what to do about Judas. Remember, Judas had betrayed Jesus Christ and went out and hung himself afterwards. And so they were down to 11 apostles instead of 12. They see a passage in the Old Testament that says, you know what, somebody else needs to replace him. They go to pick a new apostle. Now, what are the qualifications? Who can be an apostle? These are the qualifications that they use in Acts 1.22. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. To be an apostle, they have to have been an eyewitness of Christ. They have to have been with Christ from the time he was baptized by John before his ministry began to the time that he was taken up onto the cross. So during his whole ministry, they have to have been there. See, the apostles weren't the only ones that hung around Jesus. There were others that hung around as well. And so they pick between these, they narrow it down to two people, and then finally they choose one that would replace them. But notice also, what is the task? They're saying, we're going to pick another apostle for what reason? To be a witness with us to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the apostles were all eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. And so that would be their primary duty, is to testify to the world about the risen Christ. Well, not only that, but if we go on into chapter 2, Peter would talk about the resurrection. And already, instantly, upon the resurrection of Christ, they began to see a lot of predictions of the resurrection back in the Old Testament. Peter would look back to David and say, look at David. David talked about this Holy One, that God would not allow him to experience corruption. not allow his body to decay in the grave. And Peter's like, that's what this meant. It was talking about the resurrection of Christ. He says, David died and we buried him. His grave is still with us today. So it can't be talking about David. You know who that's talking about? It's talking about Christ. Because his grave is empty. He's rose again from the dead. And so he's the Holy One that, God was, that David was talking about back there, not seeing and not experiencing corruption. And so they instantly recognized that in the Old Testament, it prefigured Christ and it pointed us to Christ's resurrection. Well, also, the resurrection is what got them in trouble. The religious leaders, the Bible says, were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It was the teaching of the resurrection specifically that annoyed the religious leaders. And the religious leaders would arrest them. They would beat them. They would imprison them. Eventually, uh, eventually the, the leaders and, and the Roman officials and stuff would put them to death in very torturous ways. But why, why would they do that? Because of the teaching of the resurrection. They would not stop teaching the resurrection. And God blessed them in that. It says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. So even though they were threatened with punishment and received punishment, they continued to testify to the truth of the resurrection in Christ. You know, even when you get all the way to the end of the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul is on trial for his life, he makes it very clear within that trial He says it is because of the resurrection of the dead that I stand before you today. There was no question in his mind that it all was based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of the prominence of the resurrection in our message. He says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised We are of all people most to be pitied. You see, the Apostle Paul made no bones about it. He says it's all in the resurrection. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then you're not going to rise from the dead either. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then you're still in your sin. Our preaching is vain. In fact, our preaching is a lie, he said. We're being deceptive. It's empty. Your faith is empty. Everybody who's died believing in Christ is not in heaven like we say that they are. They're, they're lost forever. All of it hinges on this one thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But you know what? As we look through the Bible, we find that the Bible has several different ways that it focuses on the resurrection. One of the ways that it focuses on the resurrection is the surety of Christ's resurrection. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and there's, and there's other places as well, but that's dominant, because he just lists the witnesses. He says, look, I saw Christ alive again, this is the Apostle Paul, uh, after he was dead. He says Peter saw him, James and John saw him, the, the rest of the 11 apostles all saw him alive again after he was dead. He talked about a group that consisted of over 500 people all saw Christ alive again after he was dead at the same time. And remember during the time of the apostles writing this, he does tell them some of those people have died, but most of them are still alive. In other words, you can go ask them for yourself. And so the Bible talks about the resurrection and just the surety. I don't think that there's a historical event that is more verifiable than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have so much eyewitness testimony and corroboration and people that had nothing to gain from it and everything to lose. I just really don't think you can find an event in history that you can corroborate as well as you can the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Bible also tells us about how that is proof of who Christ is. If Christ can tell you that he's going to be put to death and then raised again from the dead, and then he does it, he is not an ordinary person. He is who he claimed he is. He is the Son of God. In fact, Romans chapter 1 tells us that he is declared to be the Son of God with power through the resurrection of the dead. And so the resurrection is proof of who Christ is. Also, we see that the resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection. Did you notice in that passage that we read by the Apostle Paul that he had our resurrection and Christ's resurrection just linked together so strongly? He said, Look, if there is no resurrection of the dead, talking about our resurrection, he said, then Christ isn't risen either. And if Christ isn't risen, then you're not going to rise either. And in fact, he refers later in the passage to Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. First fruits implies that there's more to come. The first fruits was an offering that they would offer to God when they take the first part of their harvest and offer it back to God, saying, God, we know that there's even so much more to come and we're just so thankful for it. Well, the Apostle Paul would refer to Christ as a firstfruits of those risen from among the dead. In other words, His resurrection is just the beginning. Ours is yet to come. And so His resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection. But then also, and this is the one I want to focus on the most, today, the resurrection life. Because the Bible in many places talks about our resurrection experience. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we experience a new life in him. We talked about it being born again with Nicodemus. We talked about what Jesus offered the woman at the well with the living water in the last couple of weeks. And we experience this new life in Christ. Well, can you imagine going from being dead in your trespasses and sins to alive before God and not having it affect the way you live? Neither can I. Because the Bible, that would be that would be like an oxymoron. For you to go from being dead to being alive and, and think that that's not going to affect your life, not going to change the way you live. And that's exactly what the Bible does. And that's what it does in this passage that we read this morning. Remember what I said. It, the first part is the hinge for the rest of it. If then you have been raised with Christ, and then he begins to explain to them what living that resurrected life would be like. And that's what we want to look at here this morning, is three aspects that we find within this passage of living the resurrected life. Now the first aspect that we find is that there is a mental aspect to living the resurrected life. Because notice what he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he's saying, look, there's a new focus to your life. There's a new way for you to think. Well, let me just ask you this. What do you think about? What do you find yourself as you're going through, not just sitting in church or, or watching from your living room this morning, but as you go through your day, as you live out your life, what do you find yourself thinking about? Now all of us are going to have those things that we think about. We think about things that we eat. We think about things that we want to do. We think about our family members and friends, and, and all those things are fine. But if we have experienced the resurrected life of Christ, there should be something else that takes up a dominant place in our thinking. And that is God. That is Christ. When we experience that resurrection life, we have this spiritual life within us now. That our minds should go often to God. Our minds should think about spiritual things. We shouldn't spend all of our time thinking about things that are temporal. Things of entertainment and things of work and and things of just our earthly relationships. We should also think of things that are spiritual. Our minds should be focused on things that are above and how those things should affect the way that we live down here as he's leading us through in this, in this passage as well. There's a, a new mentality to this resurrected life. And you know what? Sometimes we can get so caught up. In fact, I often wonder in the last few weeks if this isn't part of maybe some of the God's purpose in this coronavirus. Hasn't it all kind of taken all of us and just made us slow down? Hasn't it taken all of us and just kind of make us stop and think? you know we can get so caught up in the day to day and the different functions that are going on and the experiences that we're going through and we can forget all about God and we can forget about heaven. And the apostle Paul is saying here not in this resurrected life you can't. As you experience this resurrected life in Christ, think about God. Let your let your thinking about God and your thinking about spiritual things, your thinking about Christ control everything else that you participate in. It's not that you're not going to think of those other things or do those other things or be involved in those other relationships, but your involvement in those things should be impacted by the resurrection life that you have now. And it will be if you spend a lot of your time thinking about Christ, thinking about God's Word, Thinking about those spiritual things. He tells us to do this many places throughout the New Testament. I think of Romans chapter 8 in verses 5 through 80. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. You know, it's kind of like that old story about the guy that fought the dogs and he always bet on the right dogs, but they were all his dogs. And somebody asked him, How do you always know which one's going to win? He says, Well, the one that I want to win, that's the one I feed. Now, I always think of that when I think of this passage. Because it says what you put your mind on is what's the side that's going to win. If you're thinking about fleshly things all the time, then sin is going to prevail in your life. If you're thinking about spiritual things often or all the time, then God is going to win in your life. The battle is in your mind. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 2 Corinthians 4:18 says we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, "Do not be conformed to this world." The word "conformed" means molded by outward pressures. He says, "But rather be transformed." That's a different word. It's a word we get our word "metamorphosis" from. It's like what the butterfly goes through, or in that cocoon, as it's changed from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And you see what that is? That's a change from the inside out. And he says, "But be transformed." Well, how does this happen? This is by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Whether we're conformed to this world's image or whether we're transformed in the image of our Creator depends on whether we're renewing our mind. It also has to do with our spiritual warfare. You know, the Bible tells us we have a spiritual enemy being Satan and his demons. And we're in a constant battle. Well, this is also the key to how you win that battle. In Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses three through five, it says, "For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds." Now he's going to tell you how that works. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see where you win that battle, that spiritual battle against Satan and his armies? Taking every thought captive. Bringing it into obedience to Christ. Tearing down every argument that is against God or ungodly. You win that battle in your minds. You see, if we're going to experience this resurrected life, not just in the future, but right now in the everyday, there's going to be a mental aspect to this resurrected life. Well, not only is there a mental aspect to this resurrected life, but there's also a moral aspect to this resurrected life as well. Because that's what he begins to deal with next. Beginning in verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he's going to make a big list. And most of these are self-explanatory. Sexual immorality is basically our word fornication. It's any sex outside of the bounds of marriage, the parameters that God gave us for experiencing that gift impurity, passion. Now, Passion, there's, there can be good or bad, but, but if you think of it more in the word lust, that's the idea here. It's, it's passions that are, that are not in line with righteousness or with God's will. And then he goes on and talks about covetousness as desiring other people's goods, trying to find our satisfaction in things and in experiences rather than finding our satisfaction in God as he does even provide some of those things and experiences for us. But then he also goes down a little bit farther. He talks about anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. And so there's a lot of different ways, that de- things that he deals with. What is he doing? He's showing us that there's a morality to this resurrected life. This passage, similar to what he does in Ephesians, he tells the people to put off one lifestyle and put on a new one. If you've been raised with Christ, remember it all hinges on that. If you've been raised with Christ, then all those old things, you're dead to those things, those sins that you used to walk in. You're dead to that. But now you need to live a new life in Christ, a very moral life in Christ. Now, lest we get confused, the order is very important. He's saying you have a resurrected life. Now you need to live like it. You see, you will never get a resurrected life by trying to live up to it. He's not telling these people how to become Christians. He's telling them how to behave as a Christian. That's the way it always works in the Bible. Even back into the Old Testament, if you think with me for a moment, just back to when God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the hand of Moses. What do we see happen? God delivers Israel. He saves them and brings them out into the wilderness. Then he gives them the law. As my people, this is how I want you to live. You see, it always works that way. You can never keep the law in order to become a child of God. You have to become a child of God, and then God tells you how to live in His family. That's the way that it works. You cannot achieve it on your own. It's the same way with uh, with the woman that was caught in adultery. you remember that? When the religious leaders caught a woman in adultery, and they brought her before Christ, and they're all ready to stone her. But He just tells them, Let the one of you without sin... Throw the first stone. And nobody throws a stone. They all turn around and they walk away, starting with the oldest down to the youngest. And they leave just her standing there. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 8, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. You see what Jesus did with her. First, He forgave her. First he saved her, then he told her, sin no more. You see, that would kind of happen some of it at the same time because we come to Christ through repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Him. But the point is, it's not like you have to clean up your life to come to Christ. It's not like you have to get better. It's not like you can live this set of principles or values or character traits and and in that become a Christian. No, you have to become a Christian. And then God tells you, this is how I want you to live as a Christian, bearing my son's name, because you're my children. It's kind of like my home. You know, there were things that you could not do, you were not allowed to do in my home. And every once in a while when I'd get in a squabble with my dad about, well, can I do this or can I do that? And he would say, no, you can't do that. And I'd say, well, this friend gets to do that or that friend gets to do that. Dad says, they're not my kid. That's the way God is with us. Sometimes we look at the world and say, well, that looks like, kind of like fun, what they're doing out there. God says, they're not my kid, you're my kid. This is how you behave in my family. I remember my parents making it very clear that in our family we behave certain ways and we don't behave certain ways. But I was already part of the family. I didn't do that to become part of the family. I did that to show that I was part of the family. And that's what happens with us as well. You see, this resurrection life has a moral aspect to it as well. But then lastly, it also has a relational aspect. Right toward the end, as he's dealing with those different um, morals, we notice that a lot of those, like anger, wrath, malice, slander, those are things that we would, if we participate in those, we're actually using those against somebody else. And then when we start up again in verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. These are all things that involve relationship. We're not to be angry in our relationships. We're supposed to be loving kindness. We're supposed to be patient with one another. In fact, right in between those two lists, we notice in verse 11, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. That was the big division in their culture between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says, look here, there is, there is no Greek. There is no Jew. There is no circumcised. There is no uncircumcised. There's no barbarian. There's no Scythian. There's no slave. No free. But Christ is all and He is in all. And so what He's doing is He's taking all those ways that the people in their culture were separating one another. You're, you're uncircumcised. I'm circumcised. You're Gentile. I'm Jewish. You're Scythian. You're barbarian. I'm free. You're... And He's saying, look, forget about all that stuff. We're all in Christ. And in Christ, we need to treat each other not with those divisions, but in unity. I love verse 13, bearing with one another. That means putting up with You have to put up with me. I have to put up with you. Let me put it a different way. I get to put up with you. That's the way God sees it. And he says, and if you do have a fault against one another, what's the the antidote? What's the answer? Forgive. Forgive just as God has forgiven you. And so the first relationship that we see him dealing with is with one another. And I love this. This is why community is so important. And we were talking about that this morning as people were picking up rolls. Some of the people were saying, you know what? Being separated like this really makes you feel the importance of community. We want so badly to be back together again. You know, the commands that God gives us within Scripture can't even be carried out without community. There is the assumption of community. These relationships are so important. And then not only that, but he gives us the last relationship that he focuses on is our relationship with God. Because he he talks about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and exercising this gratitude out of our heart toward God. What is he describing? He's describing worship. And you know, it always comes down to those two relationships, doesn't it? When God gave us the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. And they should be first. He's the priority. The last six of the commandments deal with our relationship with one another. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He gave them two. He said, the greatest commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It always boils down to those two relationships. So as we celebrate this Easter, we're celebrating a lot of things. We're celebrating that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. We're celebrating the fact that that confirms to us who He is, that He is the Son of God and God the Son. He is the Savior of the world. We're celebrating... We're celebrating the fact that that means a bright hope and a future for us, that even if we die before He comes back for us and we end up in a grave, our spirit's going to be with Him, our body's in the grave, that one day even that body will overcome corruption, will be raised to be immortal, and we will have an eternity with Him where there's no more sorrow or pain. Even now we get to live this resurrected life. That life has a mental aspect to it. It's going to change the way we think. It's going to have a moral aspect to it. And it's going to impact our relationships. It's going to impact our relationships with one another as we learn how to love one another deeply. And it's going to impact our relationship with God as we love him with all of our might.